The following is a President's Chapel given by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. For more information about this lecture or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Let us pray together. Lord, indeed, you are holy, you are exalted, you are lifted up in righteousness, and we do praise you and thank you. We thank you for your great mercy to us sinners that we know in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who, though he was holy, took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty for our sin in our place. And uh, we rejoice that he now ever lives to make intercession for us, to pour forth his Holy Spirit, to make us your people, and to lead us in serving you. So bless us as we look into your word this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in the word of God as we continue our uh, meditation on uh, Psalm 105. We'll take up our reading of this psalm at verse 23, Psalm 105 at verse 23, reading down through verse 36. Let us hear God's own word. Psalm 105 at verse 23. Then Israel came to Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. So far the reading of God's word. Well, Psalm... 105, we've been saying, is a psalm of praise initially, and then a psalm of promise as it uh, speaks of God's promise to give his people a place. And then it traces the path by which God led his people to that place. And uh, it traces that path to remind Israel in its present suffering that although there are times of distress in the life of God's people, God is accomplishing his purpose. And so this psalm is really intended to remind and to encourage God's people uh, as it looks at that uh, curious, surprising, unexpected series of paths by which God led his people to the promised land. Um, There was the path through Canaan. There was the path to Egypt. There was the path in Egypt. 
And now we're looking at the section which is the path out of Egypt. And um, the, the sort of unspoken reminder here is that for the people who lived in those situations, it was not always easy. And it certainly wasn't always clear what God was doing. Um, the wandering in the days of the patriarchs in Canaan wasn't always easy or God's purpose clear. Um, certainly the path for Joseph was often not easy or clear. And uh, although Israel for a time flourished in Egypt, it soon found itself reduced to slavery in Egypt and it wasn't clear the hundreds of years of slavery, what God was doing. And now we have uh, another uh, fascinating section, the path out of Egypt. And uh, uh, God is uh, showing, first of all, that the path out of Egypt was by his servants. And once again, we see in this psalm the importance of individuals in God accomplishing his purpose. Um, this psalm has talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and now it comes to Moses, his servant, and Aaron, his chosen one. And so once again, God is showing us, reminding us as his people, that individuals have a key function in the way in which God accomplishes his purpose and leads his people. And this, this is important for us, uh, because... Uh, this is the reason you come for chapel to chapel for these profound insights. Uh, you are an individual, and uh, uh, God is going to use you. He may not make you a Moses or a Joseph, and maybe you're glad about that, um, but he is going to use you uh, to participate in his accomplishment of his purpose for his people and uh, leading us on that path to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he, he highlights the character of these individuals that he's using. Moses, his servant, and Aaron, his chosen one. Uh, here are uh, wonderful ways to think about the individuals whom the Lord is going to use. He uses those whom he has chosen. Um, one of the great themes of this psalm is that it is God who is accomplishing his purpose. Uh, it is God who is the actor. Uh, it is God who acts both in what appears to be the good experiences of Israel's history, but he's also the actor in what appear to be the bad and difficult moments of Israel's history. And that's because he is in charge. He has a purpose and he's accomplishing it. He's accomplishing it through individuals whom he has chosen. Um, you see, the whole Bible really is Calvinistic in character. Uh, God has an electing purpose that he fulfills, that he accomplishes, that he carries out. And we see that here. And he chooses individuals then to be his servants. Um, it's interesting that uh, in this psalm, that word for servant had already been used and applied to Joseph in verse 17, who was sold as a slave, we're told. But in Hebrew, it's the same word as is applied to Moses here. And of course, the, the question is, who will you serve? I think Bob Dylan wrote a song about that. You've got to serve somebody. And uh, um, Moses here 
is the chosen servant. Aaron is the chosen servant um, being used by the Lord and uh, as his servants accomplishing his purpose and uh, uh, leading Israel in the path out of Egypt. Um, as we think of individuals whom God uses, as we think of chosen servants, you see immediately how our minds are led when we pause, when we meditate, when we reflect on the character of this psalm uh, to Christ, uh, to whom Moses and Aaron pointed. If Moses and Aaron are priests and prophets and kings, no, they're priests and prophets and uh, princes. Um, that points to Jesus, doesn't it? He's the chosen servant, ultimately who leads his people uh, to the promised land. So here, here God is, is drawing us into this psalm to see how he uses servants in the history of his people to accomplish his purpose. And here we're also told that he leads them out of Egypt by his smiting. Um, several times we read, he struck down or he smote in the older translation. I kind of like the word smote. Uh, it, it sounds a little more determined um, than just struck down. Um, uh, God is active here in a whole series of events that we generally know as the plagues visited upon Egypt. As I um, was uh, thinking about this section of the psalm, uh, uh, an uh, interesting historical tidbit came back to me of a rather distinguished Old Testament professor who was uh, being examined um, for ordination in the PCA. Um, I won't go any further to identify him. And one of the questions asked of this professor of Old Testament on the floor of the Presbytery was, how many plagues did God visit on Egypt? And the professor turned visibly pale and said, well, I know it has to be 10 or 7, but I don't know which it was. So he would, you know, he needed a good English Bible survey course. Um, um, but as all of you know, in Exodus, uh, there were 10 plagues visited on Egypt. But if this professor had been a little more acquainted with the Psalter, he might have been able to say, well, in Psalm, 05, Psalm 105, there are seven plagues visited on Egypt. So actually, he was right. It's 10 or seven, depending whether you read Exodus or Psalm 105. Well, what's Psalm 105 doing? Well, clearly it's not, re, uh, not contradicting um, Exodus. It's poetically recasting the telling of those plagues to make a different point. And uh, the order of plagues here in Psalm 105 is, first of all, darkness, then water, then land. It's evocative of creation, isn't it? What God did in Genesis. It's evocative of a plague being visited on creation. It's, a, it's an encouragement for us to remember that uh, God is the creator God. Uh, he brought all things into being by the word of his power, and he brings judgment into the world by the word of his power. And uh, all of these plagues are in one form or another 
evidences of victory of our God over the gods of Egypt. And this is true here as well. God is the creator of all things. And the multitude of Egyptian gods are powerless before him. And then he goes on to talk about the plagues in particular terms visited on Egypt in its peace, it seems to me, first of all. Maybe our Old Testament professors would have a better analysis of this, but, you know, those, uh, those gnats and flies, it seems to me, were just annoying. doesn't say exactly how they were destructive. Uh, they're just annoying at that some level. They're just destroying the peace of the people who have to live in a world like that. But then the progressive plagues on Egypt get worse. The, the whole food supply is attacked. And then, of course, it culminates in um, the death of the firstborn, the firstfruits of all their strength. You know that Deuteronomy 21 speaks of the firstborn as the firstfruits of the strength of the family. Uh, throughout the Bible, firstfruits are a sign of the Lord's blessing, of that all that we have, whether in the family or in the harvest, comes from the Lord. It's his gift. It's a testimony to him. Whenever we receive the first fruits, we're to pause and give thanks to him and acknowledge that what we have is from him. Egypt had never acknowledged to the Lord that he was the source of the first fruit of their strength. And so he visited judgment on them. And um, this smiting was terrible indeed, wasn't it? It's hard, hard even to imagine what it could begin to have been like. It also points to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that he could resist and resist and resist these, these testimonies. Because the path out of Egypt was by the servants and by this smiting, but also by this smiting being signs from the Lord. That's what we're told here. Um, these are signs from the Lord. They're not random acts of power. They are declarations of God about who he is and what he's accomplishing, what he's, what he's doing. It's a sign to Egypt of judgment. And part of the, the tragedy of human history is that throughout human history, there have been signs of judgment that have been ignored. As I've been studying Romans a little bit, I've been intrigued by... You know, usually we read Romans 1, 1 through 17, and then we stop. And then maybe we begin again some other time at Romans 1, 18 and go on. But if we do that, we miss that Paul's making a point. There are two revelations that we need. We need the revelation of the gospel, as we're told in Romans 1, 16 and 17. But we also need the revelation, not of sin, but of God's anger at sin. Um, we know something about sin as natural men, but we have no idea without revelation how angry sin makes God. And that's what we're seeing here is a revelation of the anger of God against sin. It's a sign to Egypt, but it's a sign Egypt never really understands. It's a sign to the world. Uh, it's a sign to the world that God keeps his promise. Again, the world may not... Pay attention to that sign. But God had promised he would protect Israel. He had promised that he would bring Israel into the promised land. 
And this is a sign to the world that God keeps his promises. And finally, of course, it's a sign to Israel itself. It's a sign to Israel that their God is a redeemer God, that their God is a deliverer God. And what does this mean for Israel? Well, we see that, don't we, in um, verse 28. After the first plague, he sent darkness. God sent darkness and made the land dark. Then we have that slightly cryptic phrase, they did not rebel against his words. They did not rebel against his words. Uh, Some of the translators were troubled by that, and they thought it makes a lot better sense if you leave out the not. They did rebel against his words. After all, aren't we talking about Egypt here? But I think uh, those translators were wrong um, because the they there refers to Moses and Aaron. Uh, Moses and Aaron, just like Joseph, were tested by the word. God had made a, a promise to Joseph. He made a promise to Moses and Aaron. He promised Joseph that he'd be liberated from the prison. He promised Moses and Aaron that he'd visit judgment on Egypt. But they had to wait to see. Joseph had to wait longer. But still, Moses and Aaron had to go in faith before Pharaoh uh, to declare the word of the Lord. And they did not rebel against the word. They believed the word. One might almost say, and God counted it to them as righteousness. Uh, So we are called to trust God, trust his word, trust his promise. And have the assurance that in Jesus Christ, the chosen servant, we'll be led to the land of promise and glory one day. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the encouragement of your word. uh, For the reminder that over and over again, in history, you have displayed yourself as being a God who keeps his promise. A God who protects his people a God who grants deliverance. And so, O Lord, may our hearts always rest in hope and confidence in you. And whatever the struggles we face individually or corporately as your people, may we know that you are leading us on the path that leads us one day to glory. So bless us in that hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.